Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for coming tonight. We are going to be starting a new series today called Love. And I love this graphic because there's a real cute love behind it, and then there's the black, like, Times New Roman 12-point there. And it kind of lets you know that there's a difference between what people say love is and between what love actually is, um, and there's a lot of ways. Um, I appreciate your guys' patience with us here at Thrive. Um, um, This is going to be a six-week series. Um, Eric's going to teach next week. And it's, how we're going to do it is today we're going to talk about how God loves us. Next week, Eric is going to talk about how we are supposed to love God. Um, We're going to talk about how God loves the world, how we should love the world, our love for each other, and then finally, the last week will be love penultimate. That's what I've titled that one. So I'm pretty excited. It's going to be a pretty good sermon series. Um, But before we start, we're going to read a small passage in Romans Seven words that give us a really good point from which where to start. Because if you are going to start a love sermon series, arguably the most important concept in the Bible, um, you need to have a pretty good idea of what it is, what it comes about, what it comes from. So in this Romans passage, this does not tell us all that love is, but it tells us a pretty good idea of what love is. And that's going to be in Romans 13, 8 through 10. And then Paul says there, and we're going to kind of start a little bit before that, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that last piece is the one we're going to really focus on, that love is the fulfilling of the law. I like the first Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Um, I read this by Kierkegaard in Works of Love. He talks about how um, if you're going to be in somebody's debt, you're always in their debt to love them. You never should be in their debt, you know, for money or, hey, buddy, can I borrow... Um, have you watched Pink Panther 2 when he's like, hey, buddy, can I, you know, want to buy the Shroud of Torn? You're never up to somebody and be like, hey, buddy, you know, can you keep giving me this stuff? No. The type of love, the type of owing that we're talking about is you're constantly in somebody's debt to love them. Nobody is, um, you've never loved somebody too much. Nobody ever is like at the point where you don't need to love them anymore. You're always in their debt. Paul says, owe nobody anything except to love one another. But at the end of that, he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Um, and so you remember the story when the teacher goes up to Jesus and says, what, are the most impor- what is the most important commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says this, all the commandments, you do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet, all of the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says, love, this huge, big deal that we're going to talk about for six weeks, Love is the fulfillment of the law. Think of it like a Jenga tower where we have a stack of blocks, and I was going to bring it, but then I was going to knock it over, and then I didn't know how I was going to clean it up as I was teaching, so I decided not to. But if I had a Jenga tower here, if I took off some of the top attributes, 
um, that if I took the three layers of the Jenga tower off, wouldn't really make a difference. But if I took it off the bottom, the whole tower would fall over. Um, and love is at the bottom, right? Love is at the foundation. Love is what starts the Christian life, right? And so why are we going to spend six, why aren't we spending six weeks talking about patience, right? Why aren't we talking six weeks talking about courage? Um, because those are good virtues. But I've always thought of it this way. Um, you don't need love to be patient, right? You ever been patient with somebody just because you're supposed to and you're sitting there and your arms are clenched and like, I just wish they would shut up. But you're patient, right? You're sitting like that. So I don't, need pa- I don't need love to be patient, but I need patience to be loving, right? Because if I'm not patient with somebody, I'm not loving towards them. And you can go through nearly every aspect, every virtue that the Bible talks about. Let's say courage, right? Um, I don't need love to be courageous, but I need love or I need a courage to be loving. Um, and that's why in our final week when we talk about what love is, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, all these things are subsuming themselves to love. They're a necessary character. So love's a huge deal, and we're going to try to do our best to talk about this huge thing. Okay, so now that that's kind of out of the way, we're going to talk about how God loves us. And the passage, if you can open your Bibles there, is going to be Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. Um, everybody, when they do something like this, they do Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and I figured we should do 11 through 19. Um, so I'll start here. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, unless you were a Jew by birth, the Bible in the Old Testament is really written to the Jews, right? Jews um, were people who were called by God's name. They were given the Old Testament instruction. Um, And everybody who was not a Jew was called a Gentile. Apparently, I did some research on this. It comes from the Hebrew word goim, which means other nations. Um, And so, the Latin kind of comes from that, but everybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile. Um, there are other nations. Um, and so when God gives the covenant promises to the Jews, they don't, re- they don't, unless you're a Jew in here by birth, they don't really apply to you. They apply to the Jews, right? And, and as they would, what Paul is saying here is that you used to be a Gentile in the flesh by yourself, separate. God had his promises and God was working with this nation of Israel, but you weren't a part of that. You were outside. You were a stranger, an alien, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was your fundamental nature. Um, And I was thinking, you know, do you remember what it was like when you were unsaved? I mean, I'm sure some of you were saved when you were a kid. You know, I was four, four years old and I was really bad, you know, okay. But if you weren't, you know, do you remember what it was like to be unsaved? You know, anxious and frustrated and constantly looking out for yourself and trying to make sure that you were on top and you're afraid and alone. Paul says that that was who we were. That was a fundamental nature of our character. 
When I get stressed out about my job, though, as a Christian, now I know that God's working all things together for my good. When I start getting anxious about what I'm going to do tomorrow or next year or the next decade, I remember a God who says he's going to give me exactly what I need. When I start just wanting to forget it all and live in sin and, you know, get out of this, I remember a God who says that even if I run to Sheol, he'll be there. Or in, even if I run to the wings of the morning, he'll be there. Um, he's there. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. When I get frustrated about the lack of justice in the world and how evil is called good and good and evil and code and Russia and politics and Biden and Trump and everything, I just can calm down because as a Christian, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore because God is in control. And Paul says, you used to not have that. Remember in your life, you didn't have that. You didn't have a God who answered your questions. You didn't have a God who was looking out for your life. You looked at your life and it was a mess, and there wasn't a God who was planning it. There wasn't a God who cared about you. There wasn't somebody who was on your team or on your side. You were alone. You didn't have any hope. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. That was your life. Um, but now in Jesus, and in Jesus, you are brought near to God. And I love he says, he himself is our peace. Um, and I used the lifeguard analogy last week, and I thought it was so good, so I'm using it again. Um, it wouldn't do any good if somebody noticed you drowning. Let's say I, I went to Miami this week, and uh, I was swimming out in the ocean. And I like to play this game for some reason where I just lie like this with my head under the water, and the waves, came. I don't know why, it's just really fun. But I'm always like, I bet the lifeguards look at me and you're like, you know, he's our number one basket case. They're ready to jump in the water just, you know, in case he actually is drowning. But it wouldn't do any good if <clears throat> I'm actually drowning and I see somebody and just, you know, some 80-year-old's like, hey, you're drowning. Thanks, you know. Send help. You know, that wouldn't do any good. So I don't need somebody to just point out my problem. I just don't need somebody to see me drowning and tell me about it. I need somebody who can see me drowning, tell me about it, and then save me, right? I don't need an 80-year-old woman unless she's a lifeguard. That's what I need as a lifeguard. And Jesus didn't just come down to earth to tell you about a problem you have. Jesus didn't just come down here and be like, hey, just so you know, this is a pretty bad thing. Uh, I'm going to let you know that you're dealing with sin. You probably should get out of that. <laughs> Good luck, you know. He came and did it for you. He came and, and died on the cross for your sins so that you didn't have to do it because you couldn't have. Jesus is the lifeguard. And he came and made peace between you and God. If we can get one point across to you tonight, it's that God loves you. And this, this uh, point, which I think is hilarious, is either to you something that's completely revolutionary or it's something that you've heard a billion times and you're like, oh, that's milk. You know, I need some meat in the Christian life. I don't need any milk. I don't know why he's telling me God loves me. I already know that. Let's talk about Calvinism. I don't want to talk about Calvinism. I want to talk that God loves you because that's the only thing in the Christian life. And I'm going to try not to spoil it. And in the sixth week, we talk when Paul says um, that, you know, knowledge will pass away, right? Whether the fact you understand all the mysteries and all the head intellectualism of the Christian faith doesn't mean a thing because God loves you. And it won't matter anymore. The things that you struggle and fight and the intellectual proxies that you have won't matter because God loves you. And if that concept, and if you've been in the church for forever, and you just sit there, and you're like, you know, you just are with the pastors, like, God loves you so much, every, every eye bowed, and every head clothed, or whatever they say, you know, raise your hand, you're like, yeah, you know, and you're sick of it, you're like, yeah, I know, God loves me, let's talk about something else. No, this is all there is. This is all there is. Whatever doctrine you want to talk about in Christian life, it doesn't matter, because they all mean the same thing. God loves you. 
And when Paul says that, that the love is the fulfilling of the law, right? Well, what's the law of the Old Testament? Love is the fulfilling of that. Somebody asks Jesus, what are the most important commandments? What are the things that I can do to please God the most? Uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Love is the answer to both of those. I love this one. It's in John. They come up to Jesus and they say, what should we be doing to be doing the works of God, right? What should we be doing, God? How, many, how often should we tithe? How often should we give to the poor? How often should we go and get baptized? What should we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, to believe in the one whom he has sent. What does that mean? You don't have to do anything because God already did it all. He did everything you need to be to be saved. Why? Because God loves you. There's no other thing, there's no other litmus test where you're gonna go to heaven and God's gonna be like, great, Jesus died for your sins. Uh, who is the first church father? You're like, no, it's not gonna be that, right? Because God doesn't care if you know that or not. He cares that you know and that you believe and you accept that he loves you. John, for God so loved the world, right? He loved you so incredibly much that he sent his only son to die for your sins that you might be saved. That was your number one issue in life. That was your number one problem, and God died to save you from that. Um, and you say to yourself, well, I'm a bad person, or I've done bad things, or if, if Christian knew what I did, or if God knew what I did, you know, I couldn't knock this sin habit, and, you know, I, we should have talked about that, but we're not going to. Um, but, or I'm anxious, or I'm stressed, you know, God loves you. So we're going to do a, a fun thing. Okay, well, fun for me. Say your name out loud right now. Three, two, one. Christian. Nice, okay. Then after that, you're going to say, is loved by God. Ready? So say your name again. Christian. Okay, ready, sorry. Three, two, one. Christian. Then say, is loved by God. Ready? You're going to say the whole thing. Three, two, one. Christian is loved by God, Right? oh, but, but I'm a bad person. You know, I just, I keep sinning and I can't help and I believe in God, but I just don't understand. Ready? Again, three, two, one. Christian is loved by God. Oh, but I'm anxious, but I'm stressed, but I'm in school, I'm frustrated, my relationship, and my boyfriend, and my girlfriend broke up with me. Christian is loved by God. That's you, okay? That's you. That's your fundamental nature. That's your fundamental nature. Um, I heard somebody who said that every religion in the world says do, Every religion in the world shows you what to do. You know, uh, Buddhism says that you have to follow these four noble truths and then this eightfold path and you have to be nice and, you know, there's these four pillars of Islam where you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this and Jews have to follow the entire Torah to the letter and then make sure that they're doing exactly what's right. You know, you have to be a good person and you have to do what's right. No, every religion in the world says do this, do this, do this. Christianity says done. It's done. It's done. You don't have to be stressed out about anything in your life anymore because your number one problem in your world, the sin, the separation, the anxiety that you feel when you're not in front of God, that problem has been dealt with through Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because God loves you. That's the number one point that we're going to talk about tonight. And I was thinking, you know, how many people are going to be in this room who are thinking to themselves, yeah, I'm really struggling with God's love, you know, I just don't know. I was thinking about it. Most of us, I think if we'd be honest with ourselves, at least in this room, um, you, you know what the Bible says. You know that the Bible says you're loved by God. You know that, you know Ephesians or whatever that I'm teaching, and you know Jesus and what he did, and wow, sin's a big deal, thanks God. But maybe you don't feel it. Maybe in your heart it's a cute thing to say, but it's like, but why is my mom like this? Or why is this happening to my parents? Or why is this happening to my family? Or why do I feel like this? Or why do I have all these things? Um, not that you don't know the answer, but you have a hard time believing the answer, maybe. 
And um, so to finish tonight, we're going to go to 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18, which may be my favorite Old Testament passage in the world because it does a great job, I think, talking about um, what happens when we're in pain. Um, we're going to open up, in just a little backstory, what happens here, the prophet Elijah is a really big deal in the Old Testament, right? Um, he, he actually, Moses and Elijah, Elijah is the second person who comes down with Christ on the transfiguration, right? So he's a pretty, he's an Old Testament superstar. And what happens before this parable, or before this story that we're going to read, is um, if you remember Mount Carmel, Elijah brings up the prophets of Baal, and Elijah says to them, you know, let's have a test. Let's see whose God is better. We'll have a sacrifice out and either Baal's God, then Baal will burn the offering. If God's God, God will burn the offering. The prophets of Baal are like, great. And so they do all this, they do all this, and the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and crying and praying, and please, Baal, light this fire, it doesn't happen. Elijah says, Lord, I know that you can do this, just show these people. Bam, the fire, the water, everything is completely burned up. I mean, Elijah's on the top of the mountain, literally. He's like, yeah, you know, I mean, I think he kills all of them afterwards. I mean, like, what a savage. He's going after them. And, um, but the prophets of Baal are technically the prophets of Baal, but they're serviced under the queen's paycheck. And Ahab, who's the king of Israel at this time, has a wife named Jezebel. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, pick this up here, saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You understand what that means? He just killed the prophet. This girl's like, may the gods do to me what you have done to the prophets if you're not like they are tomorrow, right? Elijah's like, I'm in danger because this is a big deal. Then he was afraid. That'd be an understatement. But wait, Elijah, this is one woman you just killed 400 prophets who've served Baal, and one woman says this to you? What does he say? Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Which is fun. I just love this story. Which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So Elijah's traveling with the servant. He is booking it from Jezebel. He says, you stay here. The servant's like, I'm in Beersheba. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Right? How do you get this? How do you get a man who's on the mountain, literally, who's like, I'm loved by God. I know exactly what God wants to me. God, bring down fire. Boom! You know, fire. Kill these people. You know, I'm feeling the top of the world. And then some girl says, yeah, you're done. And he's like, I'm out of here. And not only is he like, I'm out of here afraid, he's like depressed. Lord, take away my life. For I, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Where are his fathers right now? In the ground, right? Dead. I'm no better than they are. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Have you ever just, you know, slept and you pull the covers over your head and you're like, if I wake up, fine. If I don't, fine. You just are like, I'm done. It's probably the middle of the day and he's just, I'm out. He slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel 
touched him. Finally, the deliverance he's been looking for. An angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And you think to yourself, wow, an angel's come. This is going to completely restore his confidence with God. He's going to be so happy. And he ate and drank and lay down again. This guy, I don't, he's severely gone. Could you imagine an, you're really depressed and an angel comes and he made you, like, brought you IHOP or whatever? You're like, thanks. Slipped again? Like, this dude is depressed. He's frustrated. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand and will realize he feels like he is the only Christian out there. He feels like he has been fighting his whole life, that he's been praying his whole life, that he's been doing what's right his whole life. And he's like, God, I have tried to love you, and there's no love. I don't feel any love. And he's depressed, and he's hurt. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. Could you imagine? It's just like delivery service over here. And touched him and said, and this is where it changes, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Elijah, you are stressed. The journey is too great for you. And Elijah, he arose and ate and drank. And then, after the second time, he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And back in those days, you couldn't just, um, the presence of God was not in your heart. You didn't have Jesus in your heart, right? Jesus didn't exist. To the, they didn't know Jesus existed back then. And so they don't have God in their heart. They have to meet God at a localized place. He goes to the Mount of God, and there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That just touches my heart every time. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are we here? You just had this crazy superhero, you know, Mount experience. What are you doing here? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, being God, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And I just think, you know, if imagine you told your dad you're just frustrated, and you said, you know, and I can't stand this. You don't take care of them the way you take care of me, and I, you just beat me. And he says, go, go out there. You think you're going to get like a present, or do you think he's angry if he forces you to go out somewhere? Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And I bet Elijah's just like this, you know, going out, stand out before the Lord, like, oh gosh, what punishment is going to befall me now? This guy just made fire come down. I bet he's going to roast me. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, Elijah had just seen fire, which signified that God was listening to him. But listen, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak, because no man can look upon the face of the Lord and live. He wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood before at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You like that? What God says never changes. God's the same. Yesterday, tomorrow, today, forever. And he knows exactly what Elijah needs to hear. Elijah's just not in a place to hear it yet. And so he says to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, threw down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And what that means there is that God had a plan anyway. You know how Elijah, when he's, you know, saying this before God, for I, even I only am left. God's like, no, you're not. There's 7,000 other people who are like, who are exactly where you're at. Because God still had a plan, and he didn't see it. He didn't feel it. He didn't understand it. He was frustrated. He was depressed. And God had a plan, right? God knew exactly who the next kings were going to be. God knew exactly who the next prophet was going to be. God had kept for himself people in Israel who had not succumbed to this idolatry. And yet Elijah didn't feel it. He didn't see it. And yet God still had a plan. God had a plan even when Elijah couldn't feel it, even though he thought he was watching the end of this era watching the extinguishing of Judaism in his generation. Um, God loved him and already had a plan in place for him. And I love this story because it's so raw and you can hear the emotion and the pain. And as we talk tonight about that God loves you, some of us in this room, we know it intellectually, but we don't feel it. And I guess what I'm trying to say by this whole story is that it's okay even if you can't feel it because God still loves you. It doesn't matter necessarily if you can feel it, although it's hard. Sometimes we just have to convince ourselves that even though we can't feel it, even though it doesn't feel real, that God still loves us and has a plan. There have been times in my life where my life feels like it is irreconcilably broken. There's no way it's going to come back together. There's no way it's going to, you know, do this other thing that it's going to reach inside and be together. And six months later, it starts to hurt a little less. And then a year later, it starts to hurt even less. And then two years later, you look at it and you're like, oh, I think I can see what God's doing there three years later. You know, and sometimes it never happens like that. Sometimes it's just frustrating, but sometimes it does, and sometimes you see it, and sometimes you feel it later, and even if you don't feel it now, know that God is there, God loves you, and he's waiting for you, and he has a plan through you out of love even when you're struggling. Um, and finally, we're gonna say, read Romans 8, 38 through 39. The love that God has for you Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, God's put his love on you. Um, there's nothing that you're going to do to take his love away. And even if you don't feel it, he still loves you and cares for you. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your love that is just, just given to us, God, for free. Um, it's free to us, but it was bought at a cost by you, God. Um, you saw our problem of sin, and you saw that the only way to fix it, to solve it, was to send your son. And you loved us, God, so much that uh, you sacrificed your son for us. And God, we just there's nothing that we can do to earn that. But we love you, God, and we're so thankful that you did that. We pray that, I pray that everyone in this room, God, might tonight just have a fresh understanding of what it means that you love them. Not this Sunday school Christianized version of, oh, you know, God loves you, you know, but this idea in their heart that God has seen everything that they do, will do, have done, their, their apathy, their problems, their sin, and you love them, God, unconditionally, and that nothing in their life 
things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nothing, God, will ever separate them from the love that you've shown them in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we're so thankful for that, God. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. That's it. I don't know what you're looking at me for. (laughs) 